0: This episode of See Here is brought to you by the sweet sounds of Denise Way Everly. <music>
1: the music movie podcast. Morris, why am I doing this intro? Because we have decided
2: <laughs> that we're going to be uh, very democratic here on this program and we're going to take it in turns from now on to be um uh ring circus ringleaders. So Wendy, you are the uh the hostess with the mostest this time. So
0: you're now. you're saying we're going to take it in turns in the ring?
1: Yes, what? I'm going to take turns knocking you each out. That's what we're doing.
0: Yeah. <laughs> So there you go. Yeah, yeah. Wendy, you
2: take the reins.
1: All right. Yeah. Well, uh, first of all, shouldn't we go around and talk about what we've been doing in the past, the past month or so? What movies you've seen? What you've been up to? I guess we should.
2: Um, all right. Well, okay. Well, it's who wants to go first? All
3: right. We I'll should go. Be... I'll go first since
2: you're all rushing into it. Hello. My <laughs> name. My name is Morris, and uh, I'll, do, I'll, I'll do the quick intro. We, we got Bernie Sticky in Bath. Hello. We have hello Jim. there. Tim Merrill in Seoul, and we have the hostess with the mostest, Wendy Freeman in Chicago, and my name. Oh,
4: is- oh and sh- shouldn't the hostess be making these introductions, more She, she hasn't- already. Yeah. She hasn't
1: done it, so I'm like, oh uh, yeah. She's
4: not going to learn unless you just let her get on and do it, boys. Oh, all right, okay. Wendy, <laughs> you know I've, hosted-
1: I've never hosted a podcast before. What do I know?
2: <laughs> oh no, double page spread. Okay. Um, all right. <laughs> Okay, so I'll talk about what I've been um, watching and listening to recently. I'll just mention uh, one film and one CD. So, um, film that I watched over the last couple of days, and I, I'm sort of thinking this could actually possibly be a future contender for a see-here discussion. I'm not sure. I'll see what you guys think. Uh, it's the first uh, film directed by um, a French director called Jean-Jacques Benet. Now, uh, the film is Diva, and I'd seen his film Betty Blue. More times than I care to think, and it's not just because it has some great sex scenes in it. but yes. uh,
3: right, Morris. <laughs>
2: and yeah, read Playboy for the articles as well. Um, yeah. but yeah, no, but yeah, yeah. Betty Blue was um, I thought, and I I got to say right off the bat that I'm no fan of the three hour director's cut. Sometimes when the studio says cut it down, they actually know what they're talking about. But the two hour version is one that I absolutely love and have watched countless times. So it just, I was in the uh, library the other day and they had a copy of Diva. and I thought, oh, I really should watch this and just see what else he's done. So I, I, I watch it. Have any of you guys seen Oh Yeah. No. Okay,
4: I well. haven't seen it for about 25 odd years, so I, I remember hardly anything about it. So. All
2: right. So for, for those of you out there who uh, may not have seen it and uh, don't know what the film's about, it's um uh, this fellow, hes uh, he's a postman and but he also loves his music, and he goes off to a concert of a uh, an American opera singer, who I can't remember the name of the actress, but she absolutely she's gorgeous and has a beautiful voice, and he's completely smitten with her, and he records her concert. And she has this thing where she believes in the purity of the human voice and doesn't want to ever uh, record in a studio, doesn't ever want to be recorded. She just wants to perform in concert, and that's it. So he goes and records. So basically. For his own personal thing, but he's making a bootleg, a classical bootleg, effectively, and the results are he there. It's a story of two tapes. There's his recording, which we got some shady uh, record studio owners who want to sign her, assign her to their label, who want to get access to this tape that he has. But there's also another story, completely where a cassette's been left in his motorcycle bag that's going to break open a European prostitution ring. So he's basically being chased by two people who want these two different tapes, or two different groups of people who want these tapes. And it's a bit thriller, and it's a bit love story, and it's very European-looking, what is a European film? And it absolutely looks gorgeous. It gets a little bit convoluted at points, but it is definitely worth a watch. And for a first film, it's, it's incredible. So... I'd recommend that Diva by Jean-Jacques Bernay. And the uh, CD I want to bring up that I got about, no, maybe a week and a half ago is, it's a best of, and I know that some people sort of think that best ofs are uh, lame, but I wanted to get into this. this is the best of John Doe. Thus far, or this far, and John Doe is the uh, bass player and and one of the lead singers of the group X. We're, and we're going to be uh, discussing with uh, Eric, reanimator an X album in uh, in April. Actually, we're so we're going to do. There are two bands called X. There's an Australian band called X. So I, I figured it might be a nice thing to discuss an album from each of the X's. So we're gonna there's do... also
1: a band in Japan called X Japan who had to change their name to X-Japan. Oh, really? Maybe yes. we throw them into the mix as well. Yes. Their lead singer plays a, a glass piano. Oh, what? What? Yeah, and he, he wrote a comic book.
2: That's amazing. Well, very, very, <laughs> yeah. very talented lead singer. But um, anyway, so on this album, it shows more of a, um, I don't know, I guess a rock and roll and countryside of uh, John Doe. And as uh, Eric put it to me during the week, he said, not knowing I'd already actually sort of bought this best of, he said, you want to listen to some of John Doe's solo stuff. He's yet another case of a punk singer who's turned into a crusty old country singer. It's it's not quite, but it is a mixture of roots, rock, Americana sort of thing. And uh, I'm really digging that. And I'm digging the X ex- albums uh, that I've been listening to over the last week as well. The best of John Doe this far. So um that's what I've been uh, grooving on in uh, the last week or so.
4: Nice. Did you check out that Flesh Eater's uh, LP yet, Morris? Did you get a chance to? I haven't had a listen to that,
2: although I did listen to a couple of uh, tunes on YouTube after we last spoke. uh, Okay. And, uh, yeah, I didn't mind that. So I'm definitely looking forward to listening to that whole Flesh Eater's. Is John John Doe on that
4: album? Um,
2: Because I know he played on or two of their album.
4: Okay. Or is it? No, I think he is, actually. Yes, he is. The, uh, uh, I oh, think oh, it was a different lineup pretty much with every LP, but I believe John Doe's on that one. DJ Bonebreak is on that one. Dave nice. Alvin is on that one. Well, let me know when you get around to it, Morris.
2: Yeah, I'll look hopefully over the next week for
4: would uh, like to do. That nice. Uh, and for all you listeners out there, we're talking about uh, A Minute to Pray, A Second to Die. Was it A Second to Pray, A Minute to Die by uh, Flesh Eaters? Either way is great.
2: Excellent. No, looking forward to that. Thanks, Ben.
0: Tim? All right. I'm in, I guess. I've been watching a number of uh, documentaries, I guess, in research for some potential future episodes. First one I watched is the Grand Hart documentary.
1: Oh, man, how have I still not watched this?
0: Yeah, every, every everything. It's really, it's really uh, interesting retrospect into an artist that is kind of continuing to do his own thing or dance to the beat of his own drummer. Uh, No pun intended. But, uh, it's it's interesting to see the parallels between uh, Grant Hart and Bob Mould because the both of them, you know, were two linchpins in Husker Du, which was probably one of the biggest influential bands for me growing up in the 80s and 90s. I got lucky enough to see them on the last tour and, uh, you know, that just blew my mind. They were basically like the Beatles of punk rock to me. The documentary is just about the life of Grant Hart, post-Husker and, you know, um, getting through certain uh, tragedies in his life and overcoming and, and trying to, you know, approach the creative process in his own way. It's, it's, it's interesting. Uh, it's what well we're seeking out. The other one I watched was I saw this uh, documentary called Filmage. It's about the uh, story of the Descendants, and uh, the Descendants were a California power pop punk band to come out of the uh, '80s and '90s. And I guess the best way to describe the Descendants would kind of be like almost like a punk rock because they were really uh, heavy on the harmony. You-, you know the Descendants, Wendy?
1: Of course, yeah, all yeah, okay, yeah. 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 Milo goes
0: all yeah, yeah.
1: all that, yeah. Right,
0: right. It's so funny that they they were more of a like. Morris, you would really love The Descendants because they're so hooky, like mm. pop punk. Absolutely, I think you'd really love them, man. I'm right now. The, the Descendants, actually, the band was based around a drummer, too, Bill Stevenson, right? Mm-hmm. And this guy was a powerhouse. I mean, a bull. I mean, he, he played with you know The Descendants. He played with Black Flag. Eventually, he played with all. Like, he played with so many different bands. But, I mean, um, it's, it's a really, really solid documentary, too. I mean, I really quite enjoy that. Oh, uh, music wise, I just stumbled across something that really made my, my week that I thought was amazing is it's funny where you get into that juxtaposition where those, there's those bands that you wish would break up and they never do. <laughs> yes. And then, and then there's those bands that you wish would get back together again, and they never do, or at least. But the then band, once in a while... A lot of makes no sense. Every band gets
2: back together eventually, surely. Well, not always, man. I mean, you Unless know, all
1: it's... dead, Unless people are dead in the band. Yeah. No, that, well, that, who, that,
2: who, you get you get one, one surviving member and he gets you know five session musos and he still calls the band by its original title. I'll, I'll think of one before we're out.
0: Right. But uh, once in a while, you get those bands that decide to come back after so many years. And it's either, you know, abysmally the, the screaming shits or it's uh, it turns out to be pretty amazing. And I had two really amazing surprises this week. One was, uh, first is the return of uh, Swerve Driver. Oh. Huh. And they've got a new album coming out. And it's really, really good. I mean, I've I've heard in advance of it, and it's really damn good. Their uh, lead vocalist, man, he's a wicked songwriter, and, like, the new album is just fantastic. I really love it. Adam Franklin, that was uh, just having a brain fart in the AM. No, it was Adam Franklin as their uh, singer-lyricist. Fantastic band. The other one that really blew my mind that Bernie would like is uh, there was a band out of Texas, and they were, you, know, you know the trans label, Bernie. Uh,
4: yes, yeah, yeah.
0: Yeah, Trans Syndicate, right? Well, y- you might say were,
4: there's a bit of a connection,
0: right? If you know, they it's, were
4: very, might be, <laughs> yeah. Carry on.
0: <laughs> they were very like kind of a noise, noisy uh, punk rock based label for the Butthole Surfers. Yeah. Uh King, King Coffee, the drummer of the Butthole Surfers, started that label, but they they were focused on a lot of the noisier ends of the spectrum. You know, like bands like Ed Hall and the Pain Teens and you know, that kind of thing. But anyways, there was a band that I really glommed onto in the early 90s that I loved. called the, They're called The Cherubs. And, oh, uh, yes.
3: Yeah, I've heard. They've got
4: some new stuff coming out, yes.
0: Yeah, they've got a new album coming out after 20 years. And, wow. you know, what's really funny is that you figure, you know, after 20 years, you kind of lose some of your piss and vinegar and your aggression or just your ability to just, you know, throw your balls into a blender, right? But Oh my God, man! Like I just heard that new single, and it was just like, oh, like the kids. This is how it's done. This is how it's done. You know, it's just so nice to see bands so many years later just still have that, uh, like, just that. You know, they they still have. You know it's like it's like it, it. just never went away. You know,
2: wow. probably is a good adjunct to both of those selections that you made there. I saw something on uh, YouTube. I can't remember who made the post but they had Bob Mould on uh the uh, Letterman show and he did yeah. songs from, so, oh, from so Be- good. Beauty and Ruin and there's the Grant Hart connection obviously but what you just said there about showing the younger kids this is how it's done it was completely a case of that oh my goodness he had oh yeah so much energy so much piss and vinegar and
0: apparently I, I haven't got that album yet but I'm I'm uh, gunning for it now Apparently, with that that live recording like at the Letterman show, apparently dust was falling off the ceiling of the theater while they were playing. <laughs> like, yeah, but I mean, you know, had had any of you guys ever seen Sugar live?
1: Yes, yes, and also I that... played a Halloween show as Sugar. We played all of Copper uh, Blue one. Oh, really? <laughs> with uh, with a band called the Husky Dudes. <laughs> wow, <laughs> that but was, it was... Well, the
0: best time of my life. Seeing Bob Mould live, like, life, like I, you know, I'd seen him in different incarnations. I mean, I'd seen him, you know, with Husker do, and then I'd seen him on his first tour, solo tour, workbook tour, and then I'd seen him with Sugar. But that Sugar show, holy shit, that was a, one of the loudest shows, I'd say, next to the swans that I've ever seen. I mean, like, I remember going out to take a piss during the show, and there was about half the audience sitting out in the lobby, and you could still hear it clear as a bell. I mean, people just, you couldn't, you know that feeling where you get right in the solar plexus, like somebody starts poking a finger right in your midsection, you know? That's that's what it was for the whole show. And it was just the three of them, you know? Like, I mean, just the trio. But oh, my God, man. Like, people come out of there. And, I, you know, we used to joke, you know, I used to say that there, there was a head, headlining band, The Bees, and that every, everybody else opens up for The Bees, right? Because, you know, you go home and you're still listening to The Bees. Because it's just like right, you got yeah. a hive yeah. full of hornets in your head, right? That's all. <laughs> that's all you hear <laughs> is. Yeah. But Bob Mold, man, apparently that guy's got tinnitus. I mean, he's. I was uh, going to
4: yeah. say, it's no, yeah. no wonder he suffers from that, is it really? Oh, poor Bob. Poor
1: you know, no. one of my greatest months was like there was a two-week period. First of all, every time I've ever seen Grand Hart solo solo, I-, I feel really depressed. I feel really sad. I don't know. He bums me out. He bums me out so much because I I love him so much. And it's usually just him doing a solo show playing electric guitar, which, Mm -hmm. no offense, darling, but I want to see you play drums. That's why I'm, you know, (laughs) maybe maybe I'm a horrible person or, or just something. But, I mean, he's such a huge drumming influence. Like, I don't like seeing him just up there with an electric guitar playing these songs that I love him so much as a drummer for. But... So I went to go see Grant Hart at small clubs, like nine people. And then the next week, I went to go see Bob Mould, like playing this huge sold out show.
0: Yeah, And I'm so I know depressed. Mean. Well, that's like you know, I saw Grant Hart with uh, Nova Mob uh, mm-hmm. back in the '90s with the uh, Nova Mob and Run Westy Run. And I think you know everybody was sitting on the floor by the end of the night, like you know, and and it was just like it was almost like a campfire sing along thing, you know. And then after the show they all wind up crashing at a friend's house and everyone sat around and played poker. We played cards and it you was just funny. Yeah. Oh my God. Sat, we just sat around playing cards and shooting the shit. And it was hey, just Wendy, like, you was, know. Wendy, they were yeah. playing strip poker. But <laughs> <laughs> well, no, it was them and, them and run Westy run. And it was just hilarious, you know? And yeah. And it's so funny because he, he, you know, he, I just remember him talking about raising pumpkins in his backyard, you know? Because he he gave pumpkins to all the neighborhood kids and that he, you know, Uncle Grant was giving out the free pumpkins, right? And he was just talking about having a garden, really mundane shit. You know, just, he's just a dude, you know? At the time, I was just kind of like, you know, man, you wrote so many fucking songs. Like, "Ah," you know what I mean? And I'm just like, I can't even bring up any of that right now. Just shut your mouth. Don't say anything, man. It's just like, ears, open up. Mouth,
1: stay shut, you know? Like,
0: don't say anything, you know?
1: Another one hard. of the greatest nights of my life was uh, Greg Norton came out for his birthday to see the Husker Dudes, our Husker dude cover van. Not my Husker dude, but my friend's Husker dude cover van. And and yeah, and he went up and he played with them. And he is just like the most good-natured person. Like, he is such a sweetheart. Greg Norton's amazing. Right. Right. Yeah. And Apparently. he still has that mustache. He still has it. And he, he runs like nice. a wine... Like he runs his own winery now. He does like wine distribution. He wants he has like a wine distribution company. Like he's really doing well. Yeah, he he was running
0: his own restaurant I think for a while. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because he's a he's a he's a five star chef. I mean that guy knows his shit. But yes. you know what's really funny? I'm not the qualifying a little sidetrack, but like one of the funny things in the Grant Hart documentary is that he's saying you know well why didn't Greg Norton write more songs in Husker Do? He didn't write any songs. And it was, apparently there was a deal between him, Grant, and Bob that, you know, Grant and Bob would write all the songs as long as he got to drive the van. He, he had to drive the van everywhere they went. But then Grant, Grant and Bob would write all the songs and he'd drive the van and that was it.
1: But there was, there was a – I mean, obviously I could talk all day about, like, Bob Mould's autobiography and that, that book about Husky that came out a couple of years ago where, like, they talked about how Bob and Grant, like, cut a deal with the studio where, like, they – own so much of a percentage of the equipment or something and they screwed Gre- Greg out of, like, a lot of money that way. Like, there was just so many, weird, so, so, so many weird parts of the Husker Du story where, like, you're not sure who's really telling the truth, you know? Absolutely.
4: You get three guys in a van together for a couple of years, <clears throat> oh, sorry, a couple of years, and you just seem to get all sorts of weird, passive-aggressive shit going on, don't you? Yeah. all rarely it- seem to come out of that unscathed, you know?
1: Well, especially when there's <laughs> drugs involved and a potential yeah. love thing and all kind, of, yeah, okay. and, and yeah. And the manager killed himself and, you know, there's just – But yeah. I'm talking, Greg Norton's an awesome person. You know, I feel like between him and Mike Watt, like there just must be some sort of thing where like punk rock bass players are always the the happiest members of the band. I don't oh, know. Oh,
0: he's a man. Wattie's a man. <laughs> I love Watt. I love Watt. We should do that Men documentary sometime. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. That's, yeah.
1: yeah. You know what else I thought about putting on the list? Maybe I should edit this out. But I was thinking, like, we haven't done any hip-hop movies. What about, like, one of those comedies like CB4 or Fear of a Black Hat?
0: Fear of a Black Hat is fantastic.
1: We should definitely file okay. that away for the future.
0: Yeah, okay. yeah. Bernie? Uh,
4: yeah, it's me, isn't it? Okay. Uh, well, two things uh, quickly. Uh, a movie I saw last week um, from 1959 called The World, The Flesh, and The Devil. You guys heard of this? No. No stars Harry Belafonte, so there is a slight musical connection, Um, and it's this bizarre uh, kind of end-of-the-world type thing. Harry Belafonte is a miner, uh, and he's trapped underground uh, when a nuclear attack happens. Uh, He manages just to sort of scrabble his way back up several days later, and makes his way to New York, Uh, and it's just deserted, so uh, he's on his own, trying to piece his life back together, Um, and then Inga Stevens shows up, uh, another, as, as far as I can tell, the only two survivors, uh, and so they kind of develop this strange relationship. Um, but then, Mi- uh, sorry, not Miguel Ferrer, Mel Ferrer, who I believe is Miguel's dad, mm-hmm. uh, he shows up, um, and so you've got this kind of weird triangle going on, uh, and the kind of racial aspect comes into it because, uh, you know Ingo wants to be with Harry but um you know conventions back in the uh, in the 50s still it was it was a little frowned upon so uh so yeah I don't know it's it's a really interesting movie the um the some of the dialogue actually is a little bit clunky and it comes from a, a sort of novel I don't know whether that's down to the original writer or a screenwriter or what but um it's full of some really interesting ideas it's beautifully shot I, I mean god knows how they got these huge swathes of New York completely deserted with just Harry Belafonte running down the middle of the street, you know?
1: So are we saying this is the Omega Man starring Harry Belafonte? I was just thinking Omega (laughs) Man. (laughs)
0: Kind
4: of, yeah. (laughs) No vampires, though. It's just, you know, it's it's a man-made thing. thing.
0: There's that shot 28 days later in the beginning with the highway, the empty highway, and apparently they only had... Yeah, they only had five minutes, five minutes or so to get that one shot. (laughs) So, like, you know, like, when you say how could they clear everything out, it's probably, like, right at the crack of dawn at 5 a.m. when, you it's know, all the shit's going... Yeah yeah, yeah, yeah.
4: But it's, uh, yeah, it's an interesting film that, um, I'd never heard of up uh, until a little while ago, to be honest. And Harry Belafonte's, you know, he was a good actor. He's, I've seen him in a few of uh pictures, movies, and I think he's pretty underrated, as an actor. So, so there you go. It's worth checking out. Interesting. Uh, and I will quickly mention an LP, which, um, it's totally kicked my ass. Uh, I came across it about a week ago. Now it's by uh, two guys. A guy called Patrick Cowley. And a guy called... um uh, probably going to pronounce this incorrectly. Jorge? George? Jorge? Jorge? How would you pronounce that with the J? Jorge. 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 There you go. Jorge. You don't have any Jorge's um, from, do you? No, well, no. No Jorge's any. I've never met a Jorge. I've never even spoken about a Jorge before. <laughs> uh... Patrick Cowley and Jorge Soroka, I believe he was called. Now, Patrick Cowley was um, a dude who, who sort of studied uh, electronic music at uh, music school in San Francisco. Went on to become a big part of the kind of gay club scene. He actually produced "You Make Me Feel Mighty Real" by Sylvester. Oh, I uh, And he's he's generally regarded as one of the uh, the sort of founders of the whole sort of high energy type thing, which was you know obviously. The, the kind of gay disco thing that was prevalent back then in the early eighties. But um from about nineteen six through uh, sorry, nineteen seventy six through to about nineteen eighty, he recorded intermittently with this guy, uh, Jorge, and it's it's freaking amazing. It's like if you can imagine suicide jamming with the Ramones in like one of the clubs that Al Pacino goes to in cruising. Just <laughs> absolutely insane. Real, like, so dumb, their profound lyrics about, like, watching TV and wearing leather jackets and stuff like that. But a, a real kind of weird electronic synthy kind of swooshes, and then, like, real Ramones, sort of Ramalama kind of stuff. But yeah, th- this LP it's a compilation of that stuff, and it's called Catholic. Uh, uh, and it was reissued a few years ago, uh, I believe, on, I think, the Dark Entries label, something like that, who do a lot of early 80s synthy stuff. But it's uh, it's freaking awesome, it's really good.
0: I was going to say, is it is it kind of in the same ballpark of like early killing joke type stuff?
4: No, it's a lot more kind of synthy and dancey and very I'd much see. coming from a sort of electronic uh, sort of point of view.
0: No, I was going to say, it's just that like you were saying, like the dancey, but then the heavier end of things, because I was saying, you know, how killing joke mixed kind of like, you know, that tribal punky stuff with almost yeah. like disco.
4: Yeah, no, this uh, Patrick Cowley was coming more from a sort of disco point of view so it's got that sort of you know kind of electronic disco feel but yeah. with I mean this stuff in particular uh this uh, Catholic album just I don't actually think there's any guitars on there at all but it's just kind of the songwriting the lyrics and particularly uh Jorge's delivery he's kind of like a, a you know a kind of weird twisted take on uh Joey Ramone although Joe Ramone was pretty weird and twisted anyway but uh, right. Patrick Kelly also did uh, an LP, uh, which was reissued a while ago, called School Days, which was incidental music, which he made for um, a studio that was uh, making gay porn videos in the early 80s. Um, and that is just, again, it's kind of crazy. It's like, you know, Tangerine Dream scoring gay porn. It's, what the hell going on? But it's great. It's really worth checking out. And oh. uh, unfortunately, he died very young. He died in 82. 32 years old. He was one of the uh, sort of early victims of the AIDS epidemic. So uh, he was misdiagnosed because people just didn't know. Still, at that point, didn't know what it was and what was going on. So uh, he died super young, but um, kind of left this uh, back catalogue of amazing music, which is only really now I think people are beginning to pick up on. So uh, Patrick Cowley, look him up and check out some of his stuff, because um, very interesting guy and very interesting music. Nick. Makes me want to shake my booty. Don't happen very often, so. I'd so there you go. That's my uh, that's my choices this month.
1: Yay! Oh man, I saw a bunch of movies recently. I went to the theater for one day, and I uh, I saw both Paddington and The Boy Next Door.
4: Paddington is amazing, isn't it?
1: Paddington was better than, than people would expect it to be. I really, Absolutely. I enjoyed the hell out of it. It was great. I felt like a lot of the little visual storytelling things were very sort of Wes Andersony, like the design of the yeah. house and the way they would do, like, frame uh, uh, you know, scenes and stuff. I thought that was really yeah. neat. I, I'm, I'm gonna come out and say that I enjoyed Paddington. I think it was a great movie.
3: I
4: think so. it's almost the perfect family movie. I just, I couldn't fault it at all. It's, it's mm-hmm. you know... Okay. There's enough peril in there for kids, and there's enough sort of in jokes for adults, and it's just a really fun, nicely done, heartwarming movie that wasn't too kind of sappy and sentimental, you know. So,
1: right, and I and I love loved the whole, you know, all the opening of it in Peru, like all the scenes in Peru, with the design of like the treehouse and all these things.
3: Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, good stuff.
4: Oh, good. I'm glad you liked it, Wendy. That's awesome.
1: Yes, yeah. As a as a diehard childhood Paddington lover, you know, I really enjoyed it. So, and then, but like SpongeBob SquarePants is like dominating the the uh, the block the box office this week. And I'm like, how the fuck is that doing better than Paddington? Like, that's ridiculous to me. I feel, I don't know. But people have no we're taste. Americans, we're Americans. What the hell, you know? We're, I'm sure <laughs> people don't know what fuck Paddington Bear is. You know. I, I last night I was getting one of my one of my. Comic friends to draw me a mashup of Paddington and the Punisher, so Punishington.
4: <laughs> nice, in a blue duffel coat with a uh, floppy hat. because <laughs>
1: exactly. I was trying to yeah. think, like, who's the comic character who wears, like, a coat that you can make look like Paddington, you know? I was trying yeah. to think of that. <laughs> but yeah, and uh, what else? Oh, I saw
2: Birdman recently. Hmm. And, uh, so we yeah, was... we were a fan of uh, Antonio Sanchez's drum score.
1: Yeah, I, I liked it. I liked the drum score a lot. But, but uh... see,
2: I'm I'm with you. I really really loved it, and I'm a huge fan of uh, Antonio Sanchez. Anyways, uh, Pat Matheny's mm-hmm. drummer. But yeah. um, I, I oh, that's know, who
3: was... he is. All right. Yeah,
2: I saw um, Pat Matheny back in October, and um, as as much as I'm a huge fan of Matheny, mm-hmm. Antonio Sanchez was for me the highlight. Of, uh, of the band, and they're all absolutely brilliant musicians. Yeah, actually, I, I really thought that that drum score worked uh, a treat for that film. And yet, I can't remember who it was, but someone on the GGTMC group said that it drove them nuts. But yeah, uh, for me, yeah. that was absolutely. It, for me, it was a highlight. I, I yeah, I absolutely. I
1: I, yeah, I preferred the score over like all the fancy camera work stuff. I, I really the score might have been my favorite part of the movie. You know, but.
4: I'm, I'm with you, actually, Wendy. I, I think the movie's overrated, but the, the score yeah. was excellent.
1: Yeah. I don't remember we can't di- say that very loud. We, I can't say it very loud. I can't remember if, if
2: I um, – I, I spoke about this with Tim yesterday, and maybe I spoke about it with you, Bernie, as well, a week ago. My position on Birdman is it sort of reminds me a lot of those Charlie Kaufman films of uh, the mm-hmm. late 90s, early noughties. And, you know, really, really, really clever. But for me, the Kaufman film that I always come back to is Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind because it's yes. clever and it has heart. Whereas mm-hmm. the others, they're, they're very clever, but the emotion of um, sunshine that keeps drawing me back. And I think that Birdman could have been great if the uh, emotional side, which they were working towards, but it just doesn't really get you there. So what you're left with is how clever it looks rather than uh, how it, there's an emotional core that's at, at uh, the center of it.
1: Well, I was having the conversation, I think it was uh, Jason Wedgwood and I were talking, and, I, and we both decided it was like, it's like Noises Off. You know, like, you remember that movie, Noises Off, about the Broadway production? Like, it's, it, it, yeah, it's it's a lot like that, only with a washed-up superhero guy, you know, or it's kind of like Bolts <laughs> Over Broadway, only with a washed-up superhero guy. It's kind of, uh, you know, I just, I just felt like, oh, yeah, I feel as though I've seen this, like, oh, crazy Broadway production gone awry, I feel like. <laughs> Anyway, yeah, like I, I feel as though there there are just a lot of movies and Birdman is kinda of one of them where like halfway through the movie you're like, Somebody's gotta fucking kill themselves already. That's gonna happen. Just f- somebody just fucking do this already. <laughs> <You know? laughs> I just I just feel like there are just certain movies where I'm just waiting and waiting. It's like, oh, somebody's gonna die at some point. Just let it happen soon.
4: There's several points in Birdman where people had sat on ledges quite high up on the top of buildings, and I was fully expecting someone to just, you know, go over the side. Yeah.
1: Right, exactly, so, exactly. Yeah. I'm just like, somebody just it jumped. Happened, Push Edward Norton off.
4: <laughs> Edward Norton was great, but I, I think he was just playing himself, wasn't he? I don't think that was much of a stretch <laughs> for him at all. Yeah.
1: Also, I watched, um, I watched a, a western recently called The Salvation, and it stars Mads Mikkelsen and Eva Green. And Jeffrey Dean Morgan.
4: Ah, uh, yeah, I've I've heard about this. I thought this sounded quite interesting. What's it like?
1: It's very good. It's very good. Like Mads Mikkelsen is a Danish settler, and and uh, you know, of course, things happen, and he has to go on a course of revenge. And uh, and Jeffrey Dean Morgan is is uh, the the main bad guy, and he's just very sinister. Eva Green is uh, is mute, like she's uh, the mute wife of this, you know, this this one bad guy, and, and she's of course she's spectacular and very menacing in her own way the way she always is, so I enjoyed it, I think Salvation is very good
4: Excellent, I'm gonna check that one out Alright,
1: so shall we take a break and then come back and we'll discuss Alison and Andrews' Grace of My Heart Living in world. You've been at
3: this a while, huh? Lady singers, they just don't sell male vocal groups that's that's the ticket these days You
1: know, I wrote it It's very nice to hear Thank you. It uh, really is. Listen, the song is yours, guys. What you wrote here, beautiful. Denise, we need a B-side. What else you got? B-side. The voice behind their power is Denise Waverly. I talked to Redbird
2: today.
3: they will sign you for one single. I don't have a song to sing. So write something. Isn't that what I pay you for? So First thing about how to save even myself with a song, much less the world. You're
1: the best songwriter in this joke of a business. I think we should try to make it, uh, make it big. You were holding out on me. Why did you save your best song for girls? I'm a singer, and I'm gonna record my own stuff. Welcome back to See here, and so uh, this time around it was my pick. And so I chose the film Grace of My Heart from, uh, what year was this from? Doing offhand? 96. 96, 96
4: 1996. Yep. 96.
1: With Alison Anders uh, directing, starring Ileana Douglas, uh, John Turturro, Eric Stoltz, uh, um, what do you call it, Matt Dillon. It's got a big cast.
2: I was going to mention there, Wendy, because I think it came out either just before or just after another film that we've discussed, albeit for silver and gold, uh, That Thing You Do.
1: Yes, yes. And and there, it has a couple similarities with that thing you do. Mm. Uh, you know, so uh so yeah, I and and I love both of these movies. If I may play my hand in advance. But...
2: Spoiler alert Wendy <laughs> loves it.
1: Okay, see you next time everyone.
2: <laughs> bye <Bye-bye>. bye.
1: <laughs>
2: well hang on, we haven't we haven't shown our hands yet,
1: so Yeah, yeah, no. No, you guys are so I much loved it too. Oh, giving it away. I know. Oh, I, I always put my heart on my sleeve on these things. Right. So, anyway, well, somebody else, give us a synopsis.
4: Um,
2: alright. Yeah. Um, okay, so very simply, this is not from IMDB, just a few notes I've put together. It's So, it's basically, for those of you who haven't seen it, it's the journey of a woman born into a wealthy family with a strict matriarch. I won't put on that silver and gold voice. Um, <laughs> yeah, so... Story of a woman played by Ileana Douglas, uh, who's born into a wealthy family. I think what well, they, uh, they run a, a steel mill or something like that. And, um, she wants to make it as a singer-songwriter, starting in the pre-Beatles era when you just didn't do both. And the story basically covers about 10 years or so in her life, covering changing hairstyles, clothes, the men in her life. But strangely enough, the changes in music styles and counterculture are not really as heavily emphasised as you would have thought. But basically, it's about her journey and the people in her life.
1: Yeah, it's the thinly veiled story of Carol King. Well, you see Allegedly.
2: That's, yeah. See, that's something I wanted to ask because, I mean, apart from the obvious stuff of Carol King working in the Brill Building with you know Jerry Goff, and I don't really know that much about her biographical details. But one thing I'm pretty sure is that Carol King never got married to Brian Wilson. <laughs> um, so it, it, one, one thing about this film is it sort of like says, well, look, we'll take this character. And this this woman's sort of a little bit like Carol King. And we're going to take this guy. And he's sort of a little bit like Brian Wilson. And we're going to take... Um, Turturro, uh, who's gonna-
1: just sort of a little bit like Phil Spector. Yeah. Even
2: and but they mentioned Phil Spector by name in the film. <laughs> yeah.
0: So it's yeah, it's a bit all over the place in that regard. But um, anyway, so um, I I I thought too that she reminded me a little bit of uh, Carly Simon.
1: Yeah, that's that too.
0: So yeah, the 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 story does tend to sort of you know, cover
2: bits and pieces of the ground. I wouldn't say it's like a a biography of anyone, but it's inspired no. by several stories, and it's sort of like a you know the original mashup.
0: You know what it reminds me of is, uh, I don't know, maybe it's just me, but it reminded me of an Altman film like Nashville a little bit, where, you know, you just get a whole kind of pastiche, a mixture of all these different characters. And you've got, you know, the one primary character through the whole gist of it, but it's like all these people kind of fall in and disappear and fall in and disappear Right. And you know and with Altman, you know, it's like you get people, the characters that remind you of real people, but they're not those people. Yeah. You know, there there's there's kind of, you know, little tinges of of uh you know kind of they, you know, Altman kind of uh, is really kind of ambiguous about, you know, who he's trying to say this this certain character is, you know, they won't he won't come right out and say it.
1: And, isn't and I that think you more know that's fascinating what, than having a straight up biopic. At the end of the day, isn't that weird? Oh, absolutely! Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. But and I think that's what this I think film that's is one of this
4: film's. I think one of this film's main strengths is that the way that it kind of plays with fact and fiction, and her story kind of weaves in and out of truth and untruth. Um, it just works really well, and I think it gives them bigger scope to cover. Uh, you know, a, a a longer period and a, perhaps a, a broader musical kind of uh remits. well, well I'm, gonna what... throw, I'm gonna
2: throw my hand in here and say that i'm generally actually I, whilst there's things in here that i do like and you'd have to be like a real grumpy guts to not find anything in here to like i have quite a few problems with it and i i, I think that the main just when we had a discussion a few months back about um uh walk hard the dewey cox story i think that even though this is strictly not a biographical film, but it follows a lot of the same tropes, you know, your characters who do come in, come out, and everything is ticked off, right? We're going to talk about this character in her life, and, uh, or we're going to talk about that character in her life. And it's, it's more like a group of vignettes. And if, if the main character, Edna Buxton slash Denise Waverly, were real, at the end of it, the directors would say, right, well, now you know her life, even though we're telling it to you through um, a bunch of uh, hearsay and stories and vignettes in her life. So even though it's not strictly speaking a biography, it it's run the same way as some of the more recent Hollywood biopics like Walk the Line and uh, Ray. And for that matter, it looks like uh, Walk Hard was taking the, the mickey out of films just like this.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, can we talk about Ileana Douglas, like, as a as a uh, person and actress? I don't mm. understand why Ileana Douglas hasn't had a, a bigger career. Like, I love her to death. I feel like she's she's very unconventional looking. I feel like she's, like, the modern equivalent of actresses like Sissy Spacek or Shelley Duvall. I feel mm. like she's, she's so, like, odd odd looking, and, you know, I just, I don't know, she's, she's very attracted to me. I, I adore her,
3: but...
2: You know what, there's from an acting perspective, there is no one in this film that fails me. I Yeah, Ileana Douglas is absolutely fantastic. I've seen her in a couple of other things. I think, you know, my um, my wife's a huge fan of uh, the HBO series uh, Six Feet Under. And, I mean, whilst I didn't watch every episode, I'd watch it from time to time. And uh, she was in that and, uh, you know, playing her, uh, her, her quirky, does her quirky sort of character sort of thing in there. What was um, the... But, so,
1: Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry.
2: No, no, go on. Go what was
1: on. The, the Nicole Kidman film where Nicole Kidman killed her husband, and Ileana Douglas was like the sister-in-law who figures her out?
0: Was it to die? For? Yeah, to die for. To it? die yes. for. Ghosts. She was
1: yes. the uh,
4: yeah, yeah, yeah. She was the weather uh, weather mm-hmm. presenter, yeah. wasn't she? Nicole Kidman. Yeah. yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. I like her in that too.
4: And she isn't Ileana Douglas. Uh, she's in. Is it Stir of Echoes as well? The Kevin Bacon. Yeah. Uh, ghost flick. That was, I remember yeah, that yeah. being pretty enjoyable, and she was pretty good in that. Oh, and Ghost I,
1: World. I, yeah. Remember, she was like the hilarious, like the crazy art teacher in Ghost yes. World? Yes. Yeah, oh, right. yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. and the yeah. teacup. That was her. She was the tampon in the teacup.
4: <laughs> I don't, well, I, yes.
3: Yeah.
2: I, I don't know if you've seen this, Wendy. But, um, I'd listened to an interview with uh, Ileana Douglas. I think it might have been on the Projection Booth podcast. And they were talking about... A web series that she'd put together with, it's, it's strange, ah, oh, I can't remember the name of it, but it's basically, it looks like it's been sponsored and paid for by IKEA, and it's these six or seven minute little, um, stories that she's, uh, she's basically playing a version of herself, and she wants to leave Hollywood, and she doesn't want to, um, you know, make films anymore, she just wants to work in IKEA. Uh, sort of being as that person who walks around the store and greets you and uses her entertainment skills in the Ikea store. Damn, I wish I could remember the name of this, but I watch a couple <laughs> of episodes. Watch, I would watch and the she, hell out of this. She, she produces this. This is her baby. It's the uh, only Douglas production. And it's, uh, I mean, look, it's not the sort of thing we're talking, they've done about four seasons, three, four seasons of this, and she's won awards for it. Oh they've got all sorts of famous Hollywood people making cameos in it. And it's really the strangest thing out. Now, I wouldn't say it's completely altogether successful, given that it's actually paid for by Ikea. But you, you should... I'll, I'll send you a note. I'll put a is, note up on the page when I remember what it's you, actually called. Can we
4: find this on
1: YouTube or something, more? Yes, something? yes,
2: it's all on YouTube. The whole thing is on YouTube.
1: Is this like the Ileana amazing. Douglas... Is this like Hang a, on a sec.
2: It, Keep talking. I'll, I'll find out what the name is now. Hang it,
1: on. Is this like the Ileana Douglas Ikea version of those like Clive Owen BMW movies? Is
3: that
2: what is? I, Easy to assemble. It's called oh. easy to assemble. There you go. <laughs> what That's else could not, it be called?
3: Yeah. 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 <laughs> exactly, exactly.
2: Which IKEA it's products done.
1: never are, but you know.
2: Uh, it, it's very strange. I mean, I, I would have felt... Uh, th- th- I've watched about two, three episodes, and I think it would have been probably uh, easier to take if it wasn't done with IKEA's... Uh, Approval, but you know, they had to film it, um, scenes of it in the, in an Ikea store, so obviously it's going to take their their approval. It would have been a, a little bit more twisted, a little bit darker, maybe, but otherwise, yeah, it's, it's worth a watch, it's worth a watch. So, yeah, that's an, another Renault cap. I
4: bet if you go round to uh, Ileana Douglas's house, if she invites you round for dinner, yeah, <laughs> and you go round. And it's just like IKEA shit everywhere. Okay. <laughs> all, all her couches and shelving and her dinner table and like all the all the you know, the uh, saucepans and stuff she'll cook dinner for you in.
1: Yeah, so all we'll get Ikea. To, uh, eat on her Bjork table or her, you know, uh Norsky, <laughs> yeah. bookcase or whatever.
4: Right. Right. And she serves you coffee and those little vanilla biscuits that you get from IKEA at the end.
1: <laughs> the Swedish meatballs, the frozen lingonberries. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Great.
4: Oh they make well, they make the great course.
2: Swedish meatballs in this show, so but uh, no, but like, I, I agree that she does do a terrific job in uh, in Grace of My Heart, and she does this strange combination of being vulnerable and yet wanting to try and be strong. You know, she's not uh, being overly forceful, but you know, for probably it's. And I, I guess that is something that's authentic with the time. You know, if she was if she was around if her character was based in the nineties. Um, then she'd probably say, I'm standing up for myself. You, you men can't tell me how to produce this record. I'm going to do the record how I want. But that was not the way that, you know, she could do in late 1959, early 1960 or whatever. She had to take what she could get and she had to bide her time, but she still had enough strength, uh, to be able to sort of persist with her muse. And there's this great scene where, uh, her husband in the first part of the film, played by uh, Eric Stoltz, who I think would have probably been even better served if it had been played by Steve Zahn. But um, uh, there's uh, a bit where they're in a a radio studio and they're talking about a song that they're writing, or maybe they've just written uh, about uh, a girl uh, who gets, uh, a teenage girl who gets pregnant.
1: Unwanted number.
2: uh, That's the one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, the the um uh, the Eric Stoltz character keeps saying, oh, well, it really needs to be told from the boyfriend's perspective. And she's saying, no, 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 I think this needs to be done from the uh, pregnant girl's perspective. And she's not being, you know, sort of like overly forceful, but she's standing up for herself in a way that seems realistic with the time. So I, I just, uh, I, I admired that aspect of the writing and i certainly admired that aspect of uh, eliana douglas's acting it was not going over the top it, it, was, it was just she did what had to be done and i think she did a, a fantastic job
1: you know another thing i really really appreciate about this movie as you know a, a majority of the movies i generally like could be considered macho i suppose <laughs> and so this is what like i really enjoyed the fact that like they set it up her relationships with other women they introduce them as though they could be rivalries, like her, her friendship with uh, Doris, the woman who she meets in, in the in the first few moments. Like, she's she's entered a singing competition against this woman, and they set it up as though, like, oh, well, the, you know, she's going to be this big competition to her. And no, instead they turn out to be lifelong friends. And the same thing with like, mm-hmm. Patsy Kensit, like the, the blonde British, you know, with another appearance by Chris Isaac. You know, Chris Isaac yes, popping yes. up all the time. <laughs> But, but yeah, like, they set it up, they establish it quickly, like, oh, this woman's going to be her rival, and then they end up becoming friends. Like, I, I liked that a lot. I like that aspect of, of legitimate, like, female friendship.
2: Yeah, no, no, I, I completely can see that, and she's, um, uh, she's I, I think, though, in general, she's the sort of character who wants to see the best in in everyone, and, um, you know, I mean, like, even, you know, the, the, the men in her life, uh, she wants to try and believe in them, but it seems to be... The, the women who, yeah, you're right. She could have had this rivalry on, but she doesn't want to antagonize. She doesn't want to butt heads. And they just, they find that, they find that way. And, uh, yeah, no, she's, her her character is a good character. She's a, she's a positive character. She's just trying to break out of her mother's, uh, domination, I guess. Um, so.
1: But even that, it's like she breaks out of her mother's domination, but then she has to break out from her husband's, you know, and, But, yeah, it was great because she was always looking for, like, a way to work in her friend Doris, or a way to work in her other... She was always looking to get her friends' gigs.
2: Right, right.
1: So, what do we have to say about the soundtrack? The soundtrack, I remember, being a big deal because it teamed up, like, 90s indie rockers of that time with classic songwriters.
2: You know what, this is the first time, uh, because it's been a long time since I watched the film, but going back over the credits, and it said um, that the Riptides were played by Red Cross. Yes, they were in the
1: movie! Yeah, the, the McDonald Brothers. I was so happy.
4: Uh, um, holy moly. And also um,
1: Kim Gordon does the voice. Like, you can hear Kim Gordon singing, um, whatever that song was. There's the girls a on trouble the...
4: girl, doesn't she?
1: Right, yeah, that's her. And, and yeah. Uh, yeah, and then I noticed like, I noticed like, oh yeah, Sean Colvin is in the movie, and, and Jill yes, Sobule, yes. Jill Sobule's in the movie, Jake like, Jake is in there as well. Right? Yeah. It was so much. It's so yeah. funny because it's such a weird '90s. It, it's a '90s time capsule as much as it's a '60s time capsule. You know?
2: Yeah. 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 And uh, was it Larry Klein who produced a lot of the songs and uh, co-wrote some of the songs, uh, and you know, so that meant that there was access to Joni Mitchell. So you know, Joni Mitchell wrote something. Uh, even uh, it, it, I think the song "In Another World" was written co-written by Jerry Goffin with uh, I'm not sure if it's David Hidalgo or someone from Los Lobos, probably Hidalgo, uh, and uh, you know, Jerry Go- just to get Jerry Goffin's involvement in this film. Holy moly! So, mm-hmm. uh, but of course, I think it's,
4: the- it speaks volumes for the uh, the film as well that you know they they did the homework and they got the correct people uh, you know particularly for the soundtrack to contribute because if it was just a bunch of people doing pastiches of this or trying to write this kind of stuff and the fact that you've got you know a lineage of people who you know who, who were there at the time yep. actually contributing to the soundtrack it it gives it that kind of you know because quite often when you see films like this and you have a soundtrack where people are writing songs which are supposed to sound like something but it's not quite that because they couldn't get the rights or the right people I think that could really take you out of it, but uh, they get it spot on in this, I think.
2: Yeah, look, I think Wendy and Tim and I had spoken about this on Silver and Gold when we talked about uh, That Thing You Do, and that was a film where, apart from obviously you know, the title song which had been written by um, uh, Adam Schlesinger of uh, uh, Fountains of Wayne, I think mostly the songs, which might have been written by Tom Hanks himself, they got it so wrong. It's like, right, let's let's work to a, a style, but the song itself doesn't have to be particularly memorable. Whereas I think that... Um, well, I mean, I wouldn't necessarily say I'm going to go out and get the soundtrack album of this, but the songs, by and large, do tend to work a whole lot better. But I've lost count of how many times I've listened to God Give Me Strength. And this is even at a time before I could count myself as being an admirer of, uh, of Bert Bacharach. It's only been maybe the last 10 years where I've sort of come around to acknowledging just how strong uh, an arranger and uh, melody writer Bacharach actually is and has been. But, um, uh, yeah, by and large, I think that the songs do do actually sort of work in this film.
1: It's funny, because I have such admiration for that whole Brill building period. I don't know, I, I love the idea of just pop songwriting as as a business, as just, like, you lock yourself in with a piano and a partner and that's it, you're just going to churn out songs. I find something so so weirdly admirable about that. It's the right. most corporate version of doing anything. It's the most, like, anti-artistic way, but I, I love that. But I,
2: I, look, you know what? I understand that. That makes sense to me because yeah. I've never... I've never saw, I have never mean, like, I, I can understand if someone says, oh, look, a melody popped into my head and I quickly wrote it down but I've never sort of gone down to John Lennon's school of thinking, which says, oh, uh, there are melodies, they're all flying through the air, and sometimes we just have to reach out and grab them.
3: Uh, and that's no. the
1: Matt Dillon. Like, that's so much... I thought it did such a great job differentiating between, like, the Eric Stoltz character and the Matt right. Dillon character. That's how Brian Wilson, like, when they're showing the what, interview what, with him, he's just like, yeah. Go on, Tim.
0: What, was it just me, or, like, I, I felt that Matt Dillon you know they they totally miscast him for that role because i don't know it just he just felt so like him wearing kind of a wig and just like you know really really can you dig that can you can you dig what we're trying to do like uh, and i'm like i'm just it just didn't work for me i don't know like i did i just he was trying to he was trying to channel keanu i think and it and it just wasn't working for him i don't know like he just I don't know. I just felt like he was miscast. Yeah, that's the only that's part of the
1: film that falls flat for me. It's like, oh god, I wish they could have cut like some of that bullshit with the guru guy. I'm like, oh, I just I yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. Look, I mean, I, I mean, it, if it was a, was a different, of... If it was a different actor, maybe I could have, I could have accepted it more, but I don't know. With just with Matt Dillon, it was just like,
1: Ugh. well, who are you I cast think, as is, is it
4: because? Um, I was gonna say, is it because it was. Obviously, Brian Wilson, and you know Matt Dillon looks about as far away from Brian Wilson as you can possibly get. Right. So, who would I cast is, as is Brian that?
1: Wilson? Yeah, who would be your fake Brian Wilson?
2: Well, they're making a Brian Wilson or is it Beach Boys um, narrative film at the moment? I can't remember who's in it, but that sometime this year it is,
0: it's coming out. Huh. Um, uh, I would I would say for for vulnerability and just for the quirkiness and everything, I would ha- I would have to go with Crispin Glover. <laughs> I had a feeling you were going to say that. I don't know why. It's
1: yeah. funny because I was just thinking yeah. Jeremy Davies.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or Chrisman Glover.
1: He
0: should be. Chrisman Glover has that kind of.
1: You know, Chrisman Glover has that kind Benedict of awkwardness. The you know, those Idris- are the guys. <laughs> that... yeah, Idris Elba. Idris yeah. <laughs> What? Why can't we make Brian Wilson black? Come on. Yes.
0: Right.
2: <laughs> Look, one of the things that I think you, you've gone and sort of put the onus there, Tim, on um, Matt Dillon and his acting performance. But I just sort of found it. Uh, there were parts of this film that were trying to be like the wonder years. You know, it was like they're playing on their audiences sense of, well, you weren't there in the sixties, but take our word for it. This is what it was like. And if you've watched the wonder years and you know that what we're saying is true, And we're going to play on all the cliches and we're going to have a character who says, man, a lot. And can you dig it? And, and we're going to yeah. play on the myth and the ethos of, of uh, Phil Spector and um there were they, I guess as I said before I loved a lot of the acting but they were playing on character stereotypes I mean Ileana Douglas's character was pretty well rounded but John Turturro and I love John Turturro and I think he did a fantastic job with what he the hand he was dealt here but you know come on he was playing this horrible stereotype and uh, and Matt Dillon was but playing
4: Morris, the isn't it difficult to make a film like this about this kind of subject matter without bowing to those stereotypes? Because, it, you know, the, you know, there's a history there and this stuff is so ingrained in culture and like musical culture. It's, Well, I mean, is, is there a way around that?
2: Look, you know what? I'm, I'm a terrible storyteller and that's why I'll never be a filmmaker. So I probably can't, I, I can't think of how they do it, but I just sort of well, found well, myself yeah. watching this and, and thinking, oh really, oh really, I mean, but I mean, look, okay, it's still to Alison Anders' credit and the actor's credit that I could watch the two, the film for two hours and still come away. I I, I picked faults in it, and yet I'd say, all right, this was still worth the the rewatch. And and you know, Totoro is. I I don't think I've ever seen a bad Totoro performance. That's true. But but um but yeah, look, he, he was told like you know go. Go play the uh, go play the stereotypical um, Jewish manager uh, and uh, well I'm a nice Hebrew boy but I'm also partly Italian uh, just it's...
1: like just like Walk Hard <laughs> he's just like the Jewish managers of Walk Hard <laughs>
2: in, 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 in what
1: Walk Hard remember there was like the Jewish... oh
2: yeah
0: <laughs> no I wasn't meaning to sound like him but um yeah well, uh, look is was... he... go on. I was going to say something that here going back to what we were talking about earlier is that, you know, when you don't don't want to specify who these people are, you know, in the terms of history, and you're trying to be, you know, kind of gloss it over and be a bit ambiguous, but at the same time, in order to be ambiguous, you kind of have to focus on certain tropes.
2: Yeah, look, I, I acknowledge that. And i as I said a minute ago, I probably struggled to think on how I would do it differently, and yet sort of watching this, I'm thinking that they they sort of didn't really know quite what was the best way to do it. They thought right, well, okay, we can't afford the uh the rights to do a story about Carol King and Jerry Goffin because the the copyrights for the uh for the the actual songs would be way too much so what we have to do is make up our own story and nudge nudge wink wink will allude to the fact that it's carol king hey why don't we bring brian wilson in and hey why don't we bring phil Spector? and why don't we why don't we do all this and make a bit of a, a mashup? and it just didn't seem satisfactory and it probably okay worked out better than a a, a straight-out carol king biopic might have been and right. yeah, you're right. I although can't there is one on Broadway right now. There is
1: a Carol King biopic Broadway musical right now that uses all of her songs that I would love oh. to see.
3: Oh well. But uh okay. but
1: the thing that I love so much about Chaturo is I mean, obviously if we were making a movie about Phil Spector, he would have been batshit insane. But Chaturo <laughs> <the, laughs> was like the best friend. Like he could have easily been like the hard ass manager, he could have been a dick, but he actually fostered her career and really wanted her to do that solo song, and to do, you know, like, he was always encouraging, and then, like, I love the scene when, when they're, when, you know, when she's kind of given up on life, and they're in that shitty commune, and he comes in, and he rescues her from the commune, like, I love right. that. He was, he was a, a friend. That
4: scene where they're, they're sat with swimming pool, and, yeah. uh, you know, they're screaming at each other, and the camera just goes right into them whilst they're shouting, and then they're embracing and crying, and it just kind of pulls out again. I, I thought that was really nicely done.
2: That real that, That's one scene, like, in the last third of the movie that completely pulled me in. Um, yeah. And, and I think Totoro should have been nominated for some award for that. For
1: Another scene thing. that I loved so much was the scene where they're in the club, and Totoro's introducing her to Eric Sultz, and they're all just, like, dancing, and they're all being manic, and they're all being goofy, and, yes. like, I thought that was just, like, <laughs> such a fun way of framing a scene. That was just such a, just a fun way of, of propelling the action in it, you know?
4: Turo can uh, twist with the best of them, can he? He was he was going for it there. He really was.
2: <coughs> I wonder if there was any influence from the nightclub scene in *A Hard Day's Night*. I wonder if they were sort of looking towards that because it sort of reminded me a little bit of that.
1: Now, what about the uh, the Bruce Davison character, the uh, the the DJ guy? Like it, it's, it struck me as it was so funny to me. I felt like he was so much older than her, but I guess like he kind of needed to be since he was sort of that grounded, uh, mature. Character
0: in the mm. movie, but right, right. I mean, it's, his uh, role was.
4: A, uh, go on. It, 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 so I was going to say his role was a little slight. He was just there to kind of serve that purpose more than. He, you know, he wasn't a particularly well-defined or developed character. He was just like you know the older, more mature guy who represented everything that uh, the Eric Stoltz character didn't. Mm-hmm. For her to uh, you know to fall in love with. Um, And then, you know, have a little bit more heartbreak so she could write a few more songs about it. So, yeah, I I think he, you know, it wasn't badly handled. There just wasn't much there to handle with him. Mm.
2: I guess that's um, the sort of thing, like, we should be sort of thankful that the film just runs at two hours and yet they potentially have enough material there to make either a longer film or even like a two two two-hour TV Movies or something like that, two-part well, I just,
3: uh I, I
4: spotted on IMDb just now, apparently, uh, Boyd Rice. Are you aware who Boyd Rice is? Oh,
1: yeah. Uh-huh. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
4: Apparently, he was in this playing a Lee Hazelwood type character, but all that stuff was cut out, apparently. So, can you imagine that? Uh, that's just a crazy casting. That's really bizarre, isn't it?
0: Well, I know he's good friends with Al.
4: Yeah, well, it makes sense. Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. You go, yeah. Go. So,
2: had any of you seen um, the other things from Alison and Anders, like gas, food, lodging, or? Mm-hmm.
0: Oh, yeah. Yeah. oh yeah. yeah. I was. I was about to say that I think that. Um, from my perspective, I've always seen her her films as kind of a real. She had a stint on uh, in through most of her films. I mean, most of her films, you know, she really goes out of her way to present really strong women and women, women that come through, you know, hell and back in, in, in different ways mm. or just the, the exploration of women finding themselves um, empowerment. I, I, I find that um, the majority of her films kind of portray that, for, at least for me, that's what I get out of them. Yeah, so the only, like I the said, only, um, it's, it's
1: not often you get these strong portrayals of women's friendships. Right. So now, you were so um, going to tell us a story about um the the version of God Give Me Strength that is not on the soundtrack.
2: Uh, not, okay, not so much about the song itself, but uh, we were speaking off air earlier on uh, about the scene in which... Um, uh, Ileana Douglas's character. She finally gets a chance after being told for many years that she only can write for other performers, uh, and she finally gets this chance to record a single for herself. And unfortunately, goes out and it flops. But we see the there's a scene in the film, maybe it's the most famous scene in the film, where she's performing "God Give Me Strength" and there's a piano player who's performing and. Ollyana uh, Douglas is standing at the microphone, and she's wearing a crop top, and uh, she's uh, jogging up and down on uh, foot to foot, and moving from side me nuts. to side. <laughs> Sorry, we that again.
1: It drove me nuts. All I can think yep. is, like, you're, you, you know, like it's not going to sound good in the recording. Stand still.
2: <laughs> well, well, here's the thing, actually, Wendy. I was listening, as I mentioned uh, earlier on, to uh, a, a podcast. Okay, so there was. Uh, we got we got one, I think, the projection booth. They interviewed uh, Eliana Douglas. But I'm trying to think. What, there was another podcast where uh, they spoke with Alison Anders. I can't remember which one it was. Uh, oh, sorry, no, no, it wasn't. Sorry, that wasn't it. It was um, uh, it was a, a, a typed interview with Alison Anders done by, I think, Justin bozunk And uh, it was either in that one or the Eliana Douglas one where they said that, in fact... Um, uh, Ileana Douglas, was. she watched Kirsten Vergaard, who does her voice, her singing voice for the film. She watched her in the recording studio sing God Give Me Strength because they recorded all the songs before they actually um, acted to them in the film, which I would have thought they would have done the other way around. And she said that she was basically copying what Kirsten Vergaard did while she was recording the song. So, in fact, that's what Kirsten had done well, she was uh, recording the song, thinking, well, right, well, it's good enough for her, then that's what I'll do. She was taking inspiration, thinking, right, well, if it's good enough for a recording star to uh, to do that, then um, I might as well do that. So that's actually based on uh, what she'd seen. Huh. And, and it's, it's interesting because they had um, performers in this film, like, uh, you know, Douglas herself, and uh, allegedly Matt Dillon can also sing, and, and I know that uh, Ileana Douglas, she uh, is apparently a... a I don't know if she's an accomplished musician, but she does play, she does play the ukulele and she's uh, performed live at some big multi-thousand ukulele concert conference or something like that in uh, New York. But uh, it, she actually is a singer, so um, she was always really sort of uh, confused. She made the, the best of what they ended up doing, but she could have sung that bit herself. But uh, in, in the end they got, um, Kirsten Vergaard. Now, I can't remember what else uh, Kirsten is uh, overdubbed voices for, but shes I don't know if she's ever, like, acted in a film or we've seen her acting in a film, but she's a voiceover girl. So, um, anyway, yeah, that was that was based on my story. Move on.
1: <laughs> and yet the Kirsten <laughs> Vergaard version is not available on the soundtrack.
2: Right, right, which uh, I think Alison Anders had said in this interview, she continuously regretted, so I don't know what there was, the story with that, whether there was only, um, whether there were, uh, performance rights or some sort of weird, weird shit. Uh, I mean, look, yeah, personally, I love the Elvis Costello, uh, Burt Bacharach version, but there's, there's a strength and, and power and vulnerability all at once in the version that we hear in the film. Just the piano and her voice, and man, I could quite listen, happily listen to that over and over and over again. She does an absolutely beautiful job.
4: So not particularly uh, related to what you were talking about there, Maurice, but Mm -hmm. uh, I'm just on IMDb here. Oh, yeah. Looking on the uh, recent posts on the message board, uh, one of them is, Is Bridget Fonda's character a lesbian? <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> that was also a very entertaining uh, segment. I th- I th- I was, once again, I liked it. Was, it was interesting about how, uh, you know, Ileana Douglas uh, uh, drew such inspiration to, to, you know, to write these songs for people from things that were happening yeah. to them rather than her own experiences. You know, but yeah, she
4: was thought, writing them for, for the people, wasn't
1: she? That, yeah. yeah, yeah. Based but, on their lives, yeah. But yeah, it was like so, is just yeah. a goody goody who, who is on some like T V show and making an album or something, but she's really a lesbian and they write a song about that. I, I thought that was really charming. I thought that was pretty funny.
2: I was gonna ask, um just coming back to um uh Alison Anders, we were speaking, speaking about her before and we, what we'd kinda of watched of her other uh, Films. Do you think that um, this is her strongest work, or, or do you think... Uh, uh, had, had you, uh, I mean, you know, Tim's going to mention already, you know, big fan of Gas Food Lodging and her... Uh, not Gas Food Lodging. Um, I did say Gas Food. Sorry. Yeah, gas food anyway. yeah, it was Gas Food Lodging. Yeah. So it's, um, uh, anyway, sorry, get
0: mixed up. Mavida Loca was another one, too. Yeah, uh, Bernice really likes that one. Mm. It's funny, but no, we
4: first yeah. that was... She owned uh, about ten uh, sort of sell-through video cassettes, uh, and uh, that was one of them. She sat, uh, made me sit down and watch it. Oh. Yeah, it's a good one.
2: So what, what else, else did she the, do? Her episodes
4: were, of uh, Sex and the City were some of the best as well. I do have to say.
2: I have to say that um, <laughs> I think it's her. It was her episode in uh, Four Rooms. Was that the one with Madonna and the Witches? Was that her? Or was that Alexandra Rockwell?
4: I can't even remember, I, that, th- to be honest.
2: I, I th- I'm i pretty sure it was Alison Anders, and that was, for me, the weakest point of the film. I think it was at that point where I sort of thought, oh, no, she's... Um, uh, Alison Anders has left the room, because I love gas food lodging. Well, and- well,
1: has, she done- has she done anything recently? I'm going to look this up now.
2: Okay. Well.
4: She's done a lot of TV stuff, Wendy. Pretty much every uh, what she done, Sex in the City, uh, Cold Case, The L Word. Hmm. What about Brian, Well, it's, okay, interesting. Like, Black- Black- Southland. Yeah. She did The Mentalist. She's worked on Orange is the New Black. Oh. So yeah, an awful lot of TV in the last sort of ten years or so, it seems. Yeah,
1: yeah. Really? Well, isn't that? Didn't I? I remember reading something about like how that's what a lot of female directors have have done. You know, like, and, and especially you see, like, Diane Keaton has directed a lot of, uh, you know, uh, uh, you see a lot of women who have who have taken to directing TV shows. And I wonder yeah. if that's because, yeah. is it just easier? Is it harder to get funding in movies now? Is it harder to get attention? I don't know. I, I find that interesting. But...
2: It, it looks like with um, a lot of the, so the HBO shows and, I'm guessing a lot with the other cable network shows that they have maybe a core group of directors. I mean, like, you know, while watching The Sopranos or, or Six Feet Under or any of those other sort of programs, you get to see the same directors, same rotation of directors crop up. There's, you know, a pool of, you know, guys like Tim Van Patten or Steve Bashimi. Um, and, uh, you know, so they, you know, possibly if once you get into that crowd, then maybe it's easy to get the call back or they say, all right, well, we'll use it for four or five episodes per 13 episode season or something like that. So, you know, it, you get nowadays that we're always sort of saying that a lot of the shows on, on cable network that have really great writing, uh, it's possibly, you know, something that she's quite happy with, you know, given that, uh, cin- cinema for a lot of, a lot of people has all become uh, you know how many how many McDonald's cups can we sell on this franchise for this film? Whereas a lot of the quality writing is going into TV, so she'd probably be more than happy to be part of a pool that they keep coming back to for uh, for, um, uh, for for these cable network shows. If, yeah. if that's what she's working on.
1: Yeah, I want to say like Lexi Alexander has spoken about that too, and uh, yeah, I like I like her a lot too. But but yeah, it definitely seems to me. I a, think, as, um...
3: I was
4: going to say, I think in that industry, in the TV industry, I think if you prove that you're capable, you can go in and you can do this job, because, you know, they crank out so much, you know, your average American TV show has somewhere between 13 and, what, 26 episodes per year, it's an awful lot of work, so, uh, you know, I guess if you're a capable director and you work well with the producers and, you know, the team, then... It kind of makes sense that they keep asking you back to do that.
1: So. Oh, like, here's things that Leslie Linka-Gladder, she has, she directs uh, Walking uh, yeah, Dead, yeah. Game of Thrones, Mad Men, The Wire. Like, she's worked on some amazing... She's,
4: maybe- she's done everything, hasn't she? Yeah, yeah
1: Breaking yeah. Bad. Yeah, and, you know, you would think that she'd be more of a household name considering she's done, like, every reputable show the past ten years. <laughs>
3: Yeah.
4: Looking at uh, Ando's uh, IMDb as well She made a film in 2001 I haven't seen Called Things Behind the Sun mm-hmm. uh, The premise to which A young music journalist's dark memories Are awakened when he goes to interview A female rock singer And both are forced to confront troubling secrets From their pasts um, And that sounds rather interesting That's got a pretty good write-up And an interesting cast um, So yeah, that might be one to check eh?
1: We'll file that away Things behind the sun. So as long as it's not
2: confused with men behind
4: the <laughs> sun.
2: <laughs> I just wanted to make I... mention one more thing related to God Give Me Strength. I have a note here and, and Bernie I'll see, you know, I'll run this by you. We we're speaking about the American Music Club before and yeah. I dearly love to hear Mark Einzel do a cover of God Give Me Strength. I would oh. do so much justice to it.
4: Do you know? Funnily enough, when I was watching the uh, the end credits and the, the song was playing, I thought, "Man!" and it totally reminded me of um, well the, the the album we did on um, Love that album, Sixty yeah. What Silver Lining.
2: Yes, yes, ah, sorry. yeah,
4: yep, yep. It just he, yeah, I, I would love to hear that. Yeah, um, he. I'll give Mark a shout. I'll see if I can get it sorted, Morris. Well, look, well, you're,
2: you're you're a friend to the stars, you know. You, you know. <laughs>
4: well, you, um, I hang around with you guys, so. Uh,
2: no no but I'm talking about people Truth. like um like xtc <laughs> you know i mean <laughs> yeah.
1: well now do we want to wrap it up just
4: uh, so quickly uh just uh i wonder what you guys thought about the um the kind of period setting and how i mean obviously uh we mentioned the yeah, the wigs and the, and the clothing and so on do you think i mean personally i find a lot of movies which are set in recent history um, they don't look authentic because I don't know. Maybe we're not far enough removed
1: well, say, for it to be I, period. I, but uh, do you think out, this works? When this movie came out, I worked as a recording engineer, and so oh, I yeah. really, I really enjoyed seeing sort of the progression of the studios. I enjoyed seeing, like, specifically how they changed the equipment and the and the you know the console. Like, I enjoyed those little touches. But yeah, like the, the wardrobe Excellent. in the 60s, so they, that way, yeah. they get that way. But the, the wardrobe in the 60s just was was hilariously bad. But I feel like that happens all yeah. the time.
4: Yeah, I, I, yeah, and I think that's part of the course, isn't it, with this kind of film? Unfortunately,
2: uh, I guess, especially when you're telling a film like over a 10-12 year period, that clothing has to be there as a signpost. If they're not going to put on the screen 1967 yeah. in 69. This, the, clothes, uh, the the clothes are the the signpost. Okay, we've moved
3: forward. It's,
4: it's a really sort of cheap and easy way to signify the uh, the passage of time, isn't it? Oh, here's the uh, the flared trousers and the the peasant blouse. <laughs> so yeah,
1: yeah. As soon as Matt Dillon showed up in that Baja shirt, that was the end of everything. <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah. <laughs> yeah, you know the one the one thing I was gonna say that really kind of uh, made me feel sad about this whole film was that you know. I know that it's like we were saying, it was loosely based on true people, you know, but um, the whole craft of songwriting and the whole craft of, uh, you know, putting together amazing composition and the whole history of uh, where we've come from, you know, and the, the evolution, you know, to eventually reach the point of where we wind up with such profound lyrics as baby, 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 ooh. Baby, 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 ooh! I mean, we we've, we've come so far, haven't we? <laughs> uh, no, I no mean, you know, it it just bums me out when I see I see like you know people who are true artists, you know, and we're just so amazingly proficient at you know putting together arrangements and and, and these songs and things, and then and then I look today where anybody with you know. Uh, You know, simple uh, laptop. You know, they just sort of this nonsense. You know, and it just it just makes me laugh. I'm sure that those song craftsmen and women uh,
2: are out there still doing things, doing clever things with their laptop. But um, I'm sure that those people who sort of sit in their room and still sort of slave over every last word to make sure that it's just absolutely perfect, which is the impression I get of those Brill building. Songwriters. See,
1: but then, once again, like, like, it's it's just like, how how different is Baby, 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 Ooh from, you know, da-do-do-do, do, da-da-da-da, like, hey, those nonsense kind of song. you know, it's, it's. I, I always feel like lyrics, I, I don't know, I could go on forever, but I feel like lyrics are kind of nonsense anyway, you know, I, I'm, i I just, what do I know? I listen to drums.
4: You're more music
1: than <laughs> lyrics.
2: <laughs> yeah. Oh, you're not going to go trash the lyrics, it goes like two-thirds of my other podcast. <laughs> I mean, holy shit um, now look I mean I think even uh, the, here's the thing with, for me with well crafted lyrics I mean not necessarily well crafted lyrics but if you have a song that's a whole package and this is where I take notion with those people who say that oh, good good song lyrics are like poetry no they're not, lyrics and poetry serve different functions and you can listen to a song that's a great song overall and you can sing the lyrics along to the song and not think that they're a, a bunch of shape. But if you go like, you know, to say like early Beatles singles, uh, oh but, yeah, ah. and really, you know, she loves you, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, it's it's maybe a little bit embarrassing if you sort of think about the think about the word. You think you lost your love. I saw her yesterday, and it's you know, it's no great shakes, no great, nothing great that's profound. But um, as a song overall, it works, and that's a lot to do with with uh, this period. It was factory and they put things out and the the songs of that time work well as songs and I think what you're saying, Tim, right. is nowadays the songs don't necessarily work well as songs. The, the lyrics the lyrics fail and they don't even have a decent song to work with. Whereas, you know, back in right. that time maybe the lyrics could still be uh somewhat Right, uh, askew, but they still sort of work well as an overall composition because they've taken oh, it, it to arrange it and they've and they've picked the right words for the right moment. Yeah, That's yeah, for sure,
0: for sure. But you know what? I mean, you know, not to go off on a tangent here, but one really funny thing I just wanted to quickly mention was that a lot of times, you know, you know, in my job, you know, working with uh, my students, I incorporate uh, music. Mm. And, you know, and I've used, you know, uh, the Beatles all together now. And, you know, uh, I use that and I've used Yellow Submarine. So, you know, what's really funny is, uh, you know, you get a, a group of students singing, we all live in a yellow submarine, yellow submarine, they're all singing along. And then, you know, uh, one, one guy says, you know, in Korean, well, what does that mean? And then, you know, the other guy says, it doesn't matter. <laughs> yeah. It's fun. <laughs> and yet he's you know, and that, got the gist, yeah. Yeah, that's just it, is that, you know, it, you know, so many of the Beatles' lyrics were nonsensical, but there was something behind it. There was a melody, there was, you know, um, a foundation, you know what I mean? And I think that's the difference, you're right, is that, you know, today it just seems like it's just, you know? But in the past, even when there were goofy lyrics, there was at least some type of catchy song or a jingle behind it. You know? Well,
4: that's it. I, I think a, a, a song will work if it has a catchy melody or, or refrain and mm-hmm. bad lyrics.
3: Yeah.
4: Um, but a song with a bad melody and great lyrics isn't going to work so well, is it?
0: Right. Mm-hmm. Well, like, do you guys remember uh, Steve Allen? old comedian he used to do songs where he would do them deadpan do you remember him doing that where he, like he would he would do like for example the beatles she loves you and he, he would come out smoking a cigarette and he'd be like she loves you yeah 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 <laughs> she loves you yeah like the William yeah. album yeah yeah, yeah. have, you, he heard just, that, he would
2: have just you heard peter solace did just... the dr. strange love take on that she no. loves you yeah 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 <laughs> She loves... Oh, uh, nice. I, I saw her yesterday. It's you she's thinking of. And she told me what okay. to say. She told me she loves you. Yeah! Yeah! Yeah,
0: yeah.
2: <laughs> so it's not Body. what you got, it's what you do with it.
1: Right. All right, so let's, let's wrap this up. Otherwise, we could talk about lyrics versus melody all night long. <laughs> all right. We, we <laughs> so could. whose turn is it? Whose turn is it for the next film? It's Tim's. Tim! What are we going uh, with?
0: Well, we're... Uh... Going with, uh, I think I mentioned it last time, but we had to postpone it because uh, I'm not, I wasn't going to be around. But we worked it out. Uh, we're going to go with, can go into old Uncle Morris's neck of the woods with a uh, good old uh, beer drinking bunch of abos from Australia, but a band, the Cosmic Psychos. We're going to do a documentary called Blokes You Can Trust. Yeah. Very uh, fun documentary. Nice day. You're in the pub. Yeah. Exactly yeah in this in this film, don't make you thirsty, nothing will.
2: <laughs> Looking forward to that. Uh, and yeah. uh, the month and I should probably also say the month after that we had a really wonderful response uh, to our post on the see here Facebook page. We want to um, have about four films this year from uh, listeners to the show, but just as our always say, thank you for listening to us. So uh, come April, we're going to be uh, doing the first of the listener picks for um, for C here. Now I can't remember who chose it, but I remember that the film was uh, "You're Going to Miss Me," a documentary about Rocky Erickson. Rocky. So that'll be Rocky. Is it Rocky? Excuse me.
1: Yeah, it's always pronounced Rocky. Yes. I know. I've seen this documentary. Yeah. But yeah. Yes. Yeah.
2: There you go. Well, at least I can say twat, right, Bernie? <laughs>
1: yes.
2: I know
4: watch, honestly you people
2: <laughs> no I, I get it right uh so now it's James yeah, Curley. James Curley. so um he'll be uh it's his pick in in April and maybe we'll see if we can get him on the show if he wants to oh no he says he he wants to remain a listener for now so now he's not going to come up but anyway uh that's that's April but uh yeah so next month blokes you can trust yeah. the cosmic psychos you um yeah you would have heard the cosmic psychos Bernie would you
3: yes yeah of
1: course yes yeah wendy Yes. Yeah.
2: Mm -hmm. All right. Well, really looking forward to this. That will be uh, so. That's next month. Excellent.
1: All right. So wrapping up, we are see here, and we will see here you next month.
3: if I'm strong I might still break and I don't have anything to share that I won't throw away into chance of happiness.